Well, I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. see, see. It, it looks something like this. Welcome to the Football Media Podcast. I'm your host, John McKenzie, and I'm joined by Ahmed Yusuf, writer, journalist, and co-editor of Growing Up African in Australia. How are you doing, Ahmed? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back on the Footy Media Podcast, and I think it's going to be a really interesting next step in the conversation that we're having about sports media. This week, I spoke to Rich Laverty, women's football writer, about his experience of being a man working within the women's game. But before that, Ahmed and I are going to cover some of the important news stories from the week in football media. Now, Ahmed, you've been doing a little bit of research into Peter Herbert and the Society of Black Lawyers. So do you want to give us a summary of your findings? Yeah, I think Peter Herbert's a really interesting character. He's a renowned human rights lawyer. He's since become the first non-white judge in the UK, and I guess when he came to English football, he was called an opportunist. And in this article written um, around 2012 um, in November, Ian Burrell said, called him sort of like, asked if Herbert's going to prove if there is an actual situation of racism between black and white footballers, if they're treated differently. He is really sort of like language of he's opportunistic and flashy He's going to take pictures with his new sort of fans looking for sort of victims of racism to sort of fetishize in that sense. And then a little bit later after that, a few years pass and uh, Peter Herbert's talking about the space monkeys or feed the monkeys comments that um, Roy Hodgson had, uh, had said to Andrews Townsend and was critical of those comments. And again, in those comments in this Daniel Taylor piece, Daniel Taylor is saying basically, Roy Hodgson's a man of a different era, different generation. There'll be gaps, whatever. But what football doesn't need is this rent-a-quote character, Peter Herbert, who is the worst kind of football voice piece, which sort of undermines what is actually being said in Herbert's statement, which is basically he's looking for accountability. He's looking for the FA to say, hey, this is not okay. What is the recourse of action? Are we going to see a diversity training? What are we doing? What's going on? He's not calling for Hudson to get sacked. He's not trying to vilify him. But in saying that, the unfortunate comments in, in this situation was when he called um, Andrews Townsend mentally enslaved, which I think if Herbert was in his 20s, um, would have just called Andrews Townsend the opposite of woke in this sense. I also feel for Townsend in this sense because basically his boss is calling a monkey. What can he say in a situation? It's a very icky, sticky situation. But me saying this is that saying basically Peter Herbert is this much more complicated character than he has been presented by the media. He is not this sort of like rent-a-quote character I think he's got his flaws and he's, and he's got rightly some interesting things to talk about, which we're going to do right now, I guess, with his 10 point plan. Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me about this story that you're telling us is the fact that the ideas that Peter Herbert was upbraided for by people by, like Ian Burrell and people like Daniel Taylor is that 
these ideas are now pretty much mainstream. There's a there's a general acceptance that when race issues are being dealt with in football, that there should be zero to- tolerance, um, and there should be uh, accountability, and there should be people should be held responsible for the for the things that they say. Um, so it just seems it seems interesting that within ten years, we even like even key media individuals like Ian Burrell, like Daniel Taylor, would probably now come out and write about. Herbert in an entirely different way. Completely. Like if Herbert came out now and the Society of Black Wars was now out here saying, I think there should be a Black Players Union, but me hearing um, other people talk about it, like I was listening to Michael Calvin's talking about whether um, he thinks that there should be a Black Players Union. And I'm, this is no disrespect to Michael Calvin, but it's the fact that Peter Herbert says this in 2012 um, he's ridiculed with his 10-point statement and called an opportunist. Michael Calvin says it now, and other people in the media say it now, and it's a different completely it's, – it's, it's portrayed completely differently. But I think you'd agree that Peter Herbert isn't without his criticisms as well. I know particularly there was a few comments made about the way that he talked about the Y words, uh, the, the sort of perennial debate about how Spurs fans should or shouldn't co-opt the word. Yeah, I think, I think he has – a lot of issues in how he characterised that. I think his general point about non-Jewish, uh, non-Jewish Spurs fans using the word being casually racist, I think that's pretty, that's a fair criticism. Um, but I think where he falls down is basically him saying that it's not acceptable if Jewish fans use the word. And I think in that sense, he shouldn't be policing whether Jewish people, how Jewish people's relationship to words they choose to reclaim from, I guess, their past. I'm interested in your takes on the, the sort of more recent approaches to, to racist behaviour in football. How do you reflect on that, given the way that, that football media has has almost become aware of its uh, capacity to be sensitive to issues of race um, when, when they happen? I think, and I guess I'm particularly interested in the angle that suggests, well, now that it's generally accepted that that racism in football is bad. It seems as though this is this is sort of motivated by a need to pander to your audience a little bit. And and I wonder whether or not you have any thoughts on the impact that uh, pandering to audiences can have when we're talking about uh, issues like racism. Yeah, it's completely performative. It's completely performative because racism was still in football in 2012 that it is in 2019. You can say that it's become particularly heightened and I, I can... I can agree with that, but I think there were still, there were still racist incidents that were happening. Um, remember the Luis Suarez situation and think about how the media reported on how Liverpool literally um, made Suarez a martyr and wore t-shirts acting as if he was a martyr when in reality he had racially abused Patrice Evra and how that was covered, how Liverpool fans talked about themselves, how the press talked about themselves and and how it's completely different now. And so I think in, in a lot of senses, it's, it's just a performative piece to protect themselves. I think I think if we're going to talk about what happens to happen with racism and, and football journalism, it's when the next time Laurent Blanc has a job, I want you to ask him about the story that was that broke about him and quotas in football. Um, in, fr- in French national teams. I want you to ask him about the quote that's been reported that he said about black footballers 
in these very stereotypically racist ways. I want you to ask um, uh, Manchester City about that ex-scout, the ex-chief academy scout that was sacked because allegedly using um, this the, the, the term to characterize black players as big, black, and quick. I want you to ask them what are they doing there? Are they creating diversity training or are they changing the way coaches talk to young people? I want you to ask Newcastle United how they're dealing with the racist bullying, alleged racist bullying that Peter Beasley was doing, apart from just sacking him. What's going on in that academy system? What's sort of ha- what's happening to those players? You know, what I mean? it's 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 a more in the sense of like it's fine to report on the story that comes and breaks, and it's easy to report on. There is no investigation to this. There's there's nothing that's happening. Do you remember when Malcolm Mackay was um, caught with those texts with Ian Moody? There was a black Cardiff football uh, uh, player that was on Twitter talking about how Malcolm Mackay had treated him at Cardiff City. Media wrote the story really quickly. It was all over the it was all over the media. Has there ever been a follow up about him? Do we know anything about him? Do we know about the stories that happen to people who are affected by racism in a structural sense? Because we're, we're only talking about sort of fans in stadiums. We're not talking about the apparatus. We're not talking about media. We're not talking about football clubs. We're not talking about institutions. It's 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 such um, base level conversations. So in, in reality, it's that, that's why I say it's performative. Well, we should move on, but you are hopefully going to write something up on this, so we will link to that in the social media feeds of the Football Media Podcast and look forward to reading this. But I want to move on to talk about Copper 90. Obviously, it was a big day for Copper 90 yesterday. They're facing accusations of misogyny from some of their hosts and presenters in the light of the fact that they've um, made this commitment to women's football in, in, in the run-up to the Women's World Cup. So uh, in terms of what happened, there was a thread from at Bankrupt Spurs, the Twitter account, which was taken up by Football365, who wrote an article about it. Now, the, the nuts and bolts of this article were that Copper90 had uh, released a video that was uh, very serious about the uh, responsibilities of of the media to behave in certain ways. Um, but Bankrupt Spurs pointed out that Copper90 had a particularly dubious past when it came to women. In particular, they uh, had a show at one point about six years ago called The Strip Show, um, which um, involved bringing women on in various tight and scantily clad um, football kits. And then the other thing that came out was, uh, and I think this is where the Football 365 piece was interesting because they said, look, in the past, we've we've put problematic content up on our site when we've been covering women's football. But the problem with, with Copper 90 is that there's not really even that big historical gap between some of the, the misogynist takes that have uh, appeared from some of their um, hosts and presenters. So Poet, the uh, co-host who pre- pre- presents with David Vijanic, has... Uh, a number of very, very misogynistic tweets. Um, I don't want to go into them, but you can find them out on the Football 365 uh, website if you want to find those. And those running up to even as close as within the last couple of years. Um, so the point that they were making is that, you know, it's it's all well and good to come out and talk about gravitas in dealing with, with things like women's football. 
but you can't really you can't really claim to be um, adding to that conversation if you're happy to employ someone who is willing to write tweets about women implying they should be in kitchens or that they are merely objects of sexual gratification. The article finished strongly. Here's a quote. The truth is that you can talk all you want about gravitas and make all the right noises about changing the conversation around women's football. You can even spend thousands on a slick video, but none of that means a damn thing if you continue to employ someone with a full and long-term commitment to misogyny. Now, Copper have responded with a tweet saying the matter is being dealt with internally and that this sort of attitude won't be tolerated. And they did claim that they were going to make a fuller statement. However, as of recording, there is still no statement. Uh, Ahmed, got response to this? I think like um, the Football 365 article really talks about this very well. They, they position themselves as we have done these bad things in the past. We are not without issues when it comes to misogyny in sport. But what we have to do is recognize what we have done. And in that video, I remember I was watching it and I was immediately cringing. It, um, there was this line, football does not discriminate. And that is the biggest gaslight ever. Football does discriminate. Why is it that so often that women's football is placed on the margins? Why was it? that women's football was actually illegal to play in the UK up until maybe, I think, 50 years ago. Why is it that the discrepancy of, of resources, of, of opportunities, um, in, in every sense of the word, is so vast? Do you know what I mean? So football does discriminate. Football discriminates in so many different ways. Um, and I think the, the biggest issue in, is that there is no recognition of the past. And the Football 365 piece does very well in recognising the past. And only in then can we go forward because that's not what Copper has done because now it is popular, now it is uh, on brand to talk about women's football because there's a Women's World Cup coming up because the Women's Football League in, in the UK have now got to deal with Barclays. Now that the Wanda Metropola had 60,000 fans at the Barca Athletic game, now after years and years of work by women in football, it has become lucrative for us to enter the space. But when we enter the space, we're not actually going to do any recognition of the past. We're just going to act like we've always been there. So that's the issue. Yeah, I think... You know, it's the same old worries. We've talked about this. Uh, we talked about this last week and we've done the week before. It's the same old worries. Media companies chasing revenue because they see a revenue pot that is being untapped. Now, that's fine. That's that's what media companies will do and have to do to survive. And as a result of that, it's good that, that women's football is is currently being treated as a, a revenue pot that is, is waiting to be tapped. However, you can't simply just feign authenticity in that sense. You have to treat those topics that you are attempting to monetize with sensitivity, because otherwise you're not really doing anything at all. And it's, for me, disappointing to see that. I mean, I predicted that there could be problems with this um, this sort of approach, but I didn't predict that the problems would be quite this problematic straight away. Yeah. 
um, that it would come down to something like even being aware of who your what your employees' pasts have been with respect to um, a, a sensitive topic that they are then going to be expected to to be representing in some sense. So once again, we find ourselves sort of justifying media companies' um, sort of wanton capitalism, but without really um, being able to accept this uh, the fact that even when they are doing this, they aren't willing to make basic uh, inquiries into whether or not the way that they're doing that is appropriate. Exactly. It's not to say that people who can, uh, people who have done things that are problematic cannot enter the space, but it's about sort of, and I think this is, this is the line from the Football 365 pieces. Over a decade ago, Football 365, now feminazis and pinkers, of course, used pictures of half naked women to promote a World Cup for which we are truly sorry. So like, then in a piece that is talking about, um, misogyny in, in football, they're not absolving themselves of blame. And that's the thing that needs to happen. It's very powerful, that line. And uh, it did make me feel positive towards Football 365. It's good to see this sort of thing being done. Um, however, we should move on. Um, you were going to talk a little bit about the athletics hiring of new staff. So last week we talked about the way that the athletic uh, dumped a load of their team-specific beat journalists and they're employing a group of more regional beat journalist so there was a post that came out this week from George Qureshi the the soccer editor so um, what have you got for us yes George Qureshi said nearly one year ago I wrote a letter introducing soccer coverage by The Athletic we launched with one staff writer two editors and some 50 freelance contributors working to make the app a daily must read for soccer fans we welcomed a third editor in the fall and last week we added a second staff writer Meg Lehan who's covering the U.S. women's national team and NWSL, continues to say, today we are announcing the addition of five more staff writers. It seems hard to believe, but I'm pretty sure this makes us the largest employer of four-time soccer journalists ever to cover the game here in U.S. and Canada. And he introduced Pablo Mora, Matt Penns, Jeff Ruder, Sam School, And so they're going to be regional writers rather than, say, team-specific beat journalists. And I guess what I feel like we should talk about is what about the staff that left? So, and the sort of precarious situation those freelancers find themselves now. Yeah, I thought it was quite disappointing that there was no no there was no mention whatsoever of the writers that they laid off. It's great for George Qureshi to come out and say, you know, this is great. We're one of the biggest soccer journalist employer in the the US and Canada. Isn't everything going great for the Athletic, a, a company which is famously moneyed? But there's no mention whatsoever of the two or three um, journalists who've just been told, yeah, we don't really need you anymore. Even a line at the end to say some kind of hat tip towards those journalists to say we wouldn't be where we are without the work of X, Y and Z who've done uh, a lot of work for the for the site. Um, so just want to sign off by saying thank you to them. Nothing. So that's my initial gut response to this. The other thing is, again, it's something that we're seeing all the time. We mentioned it. I feel like I break a record on this podcast sometimes because I say we've talked about this last week. But yeah, the issue of unionisation. Um, what we're seeing now, we saw it with Copper 90, is as soon as a media company realises that they could do things or at least thinks they could do some, something in a in a more profitable way, then they just ditch their staff, uh, bring on new staff, and then and then the cycle continues. So we saw it with the pivot to video. Um, face, Facebook released faulty data about uh, video traffic um, and outlets sack 
uh, sack journalists and bring in videographers. That turns out to be wrong. They sack the videographers and bring in journalists. And so the cycle just seems to go around. So there's real questions to be asked about what these companies' responsibilities are towards their staff members. And I, I guess that, that's precisely the reason why something like unionization is important. It's so important. And um, it's particularly when we think about the cuts in the last few months at BuzzFeed, at Vice, and a bunch of new media, uh, new media web, um, websites and how disposable stuff has been. And when we're thinking about BuzzFeed, they're unionizing, but still have not been, um, officially recognized by their employer, continually being dodged, uh, by meetings, saying that we will, but not really. And it felt really performative right after that massive layoff that they had done. They said, we're going to agree to a unionization. And then where is the work now? It is not being, it's not happening. And I, and I just want to point out why unions are so important, especially when it comes to media. Um, right now, the National Writers Guild in, in the States is having this massive fight um, over agents and TV writers. And I just want to say the strongest health insurance, one of the strongest health insurance um, in the States is with the National Writers Guild. So there's people that are on, who are, who are part of that union and particularly think about how, um, the health insurance is so difficult in the state. They have one of the strongest health insurance that any, um, that any sort of union or workplace, um, gives to their employers than anyone else. And, and that's why, um, unions are so important. We should move on. I wanted to talk a little bit about the smart speaker boom that has been hitting the news this week. Um, obviously, the, uh, Alexa, the Amazon smart speaker, there was news this week that staff at Amazon have been listening into people's conversations in order to hone the way that the smart speaker works, which is slightly dystopic to say the least. Beneath the radar of this story, I suppose, is the fact that Smart Speaker's global um, installation base is on track to top 200 million by the end of this year, according to a report that was out this week from the analysts at Canalis. The firm forecasts the installed base will grow by 82.4% from 114 million units in 2018 to 207.9 million in 2019. Uh, the US continues to lead in terms of Smart Speaker adoption. A good portion of this year's growth, though, will come from East Asian markets, particularly China, the report says. Canalist senior analyst Jason Lowe talked about this this week. He said hardware differentiation is becoming increasingly difficult and consumers have higher expectations of smart speakers and smart assistants. Vendors will need to focus on marketing the next generation wow factor for their respective smart assistants and voice services to change consumers' perception and drive greater adoption. So he's saying people are getting a bit bored with the idea of smart speakers, so there needs to be innovation there. Um, Canalist forecast follow news that Smart speakers uh, have hit critical mass in the US, where 41% of US consumers now own a voice-activated speaker, up from 21.5% in 2017. But the big story, I think, is that um, the use of smart speakers hasn't really hit the football media. Last season, uh, Amazon announced an unexpected new audio feature for virtual assistant Alexa, audio commentary from Germany's top football division, the Bundesliga. Um, so it meant that you, those who had a, an Alexa and uh, had 
I think subscribed to the service could say Alexa play the Bundesliga and audio commentary in English played from their device so my question to you is what sort of uh, impact do you think that this boom in smart speakers will have on the football media have you seen any other examples of it being used in creative ways or do you think that's going to be something that the football world is a little bit slow coming to I think it's going to be slow coming to but I think if anything it'll come to sort of maybe football podcasts because it's really hitting the podcast space a lot and a lot of people are using it to listen at home with either Google Home or their Alexa. And so I, I think in the space of football podcasts, I, I can see it becoming something that is adopted. But to be honest, that's not even really a football-specific thing. So I think its adoption is more whether it fits into the media space. And I don't see it feeding particularly... Well, but I do think the, 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 the commentary thing is interesting because if there are partnerships with a bunch of different um, agencies who do commentary, football commentary, and if there was an ability to sort of like map that uh, link from the Alexa's um, uh, stream to, say, your television, and you were like, I don't like this commentary anymore, and I want a specific sort of commentary that's in a different language or a different commentator – I could see that being interesting, but apart from that and podcasts, I can't really see how it can really be adopted in football media. I'm interested to see how the impact of the algorithms that Alexa uses will play on 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 this sort of market. Because I suppose if if they're, they're obviously constantly thinking about the way that um, you go from the the owner or the user of Alexa speaking to it and saying. Alexa play X, Y, or Z to whatever it decides to pick up on. So I suppose that that will be the the interesting next direction. Will it be the case that the major football podcasts get played if you said Alexa play a football podcast? Or will there be ways in which it could actually throw out new options in terms of uh, the podcasting world? So it will be interesting to see whether or not that sort of algorithmic side of things has an impact on the way that people consume football podcasts, I suppose. Yeah, it will be interesting. But I do wonder if... um one of these sort of podcast companies, if they start sort of doing, I know that Gimlet has done a partnership with Alexa for a particular podcast. I think it's called Chompers. It's uh, for kids. So when kids brush their teeth, um, so it's specifically aimed at kids when they're starting to brush their teeth at particular moments in the day. And so I do wonder if it starts to be this thing where people think of how, they can use Alexa or Google Home or whatever, whatever smart speaker to, to sort of like make their podcast work or interactive or more interactive and start making partnerships in that sense. Elsewhere in the media news this week, we spoke about Apple News Plus a couple of weeks ago, but five participating publishers spoke to Digiday, the, the media news outlet, and they detailed a series of early headaches, including struggles with the article formatting, confusion about user experience and design, and worries about je- jeopardizing big digital ad campaigns. And there was also a gripe that Apple is favoring large publishers at the expense of smaller ones. Surprise, surprise. Elsewhere, Disney have made its long-awaited entry into the streaming fray with the launch of its own Disney Plus service, positioned as a direct competitor to established players such as Netflix. 
Speaking of Netflix, the company announced that it is to turn its hand to publishing with a brand new print magazine this week. And also this week, more than 4,200 Amazon employees called on the company to rethink how it addresses and contributes to a warming planet. Finally, publishing brands like The Atlantic, Vanity Fair and Harvard Business Review suffered declines in US Google search traffic of more than 40% during the week after the company updated its core algorithm on March the 12th. So that just about covers up the roundup of the news this week. Ahmed, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. We're now going to talk to Rich Laverty just after this. I'm joined today by Rich Laverty, women's football writer. Rich, how are you doing? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Yes, I am good. It's great to finally talk to you. We've followed one another on Twitter for quite a while, but yeah. we're finally getting to, to chat through things. So how's things going for you? Yeah, it's good. Um, busy at the moment, um, with it being the end of the season. So obviously some people know I'm working with Sheffield United this season. So that's busy. And we've got the Women's FA Cup final next week and then end of the season and then World Cup. So yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's quite full on when you get to the end of the season. Yeah, no summer holiday for you with the with the women's World Cup going on. Yeah, um, but it'd be great, you know. It's you know it's the best job in the world, isn't it, to go mm. out to France and stay in Nice for two weeks and cover England in a World Cup? So I can hardly complain. I want to start off by talking about the the writing style of things and how you ended up getting into football writing. So um, I saw in your bio that you sent me that you you said that writing was always a dream of yours. Why do you think that that where do you think that came from? sure really I mean nobody in my family ever has written really um I think growing up probably I was I was quite obsessed by football I have to be honest and I was a little bit sort of OCD with making lists and stats and things like that and I still am to this day and I think that's probably where the writing started it probably started with lists and stats and things like that and then I just thought, you know what, I love football and I enjoy writing. I won't say I loved it, but I enjoyed it. I was good at it. I always did well in English. And I thought, well, if I can work in football or work in, you know, the media or do both, then great. So I, I pretty much had a fairly clear idea of not specifically what I wanted to do, but at least where I wanted to be working in terms of which industry quite early on, to be honest with you. Mm. that's interesting because I, I wondered what effect you thought that wanting to write from an early age what it's had on your career what it's had on your writing style whether or not you think that your approach to journalism journalism is more traditional as a result of that um i only say that because i think a lot of the people i come across these days have a sort of quite late career shift idea that they want to go into um into football journalism no no doubt because they spend their lives working a, a grunt nine-to-five job and then they, they they see the grass being greener on the other side so i wondered how you would respond to that kind of question yeah it's interesting I think I've come into well anybody my age and and younger really it's quite an interesting time to have come through because the time I was at college and university was really when social media was taking off you know I think I joined Facebook probably just after I left high school and I think I joined Twitter just as I was um, starting university so I think that in terms of the work I've done has changed things massively in terms of how you can promote yourself and promote your work. In terms of being a journalist, I think 
growing up, you probably have a a sort of a simple sense of what the word journalist means because you're a kid. You know, you think it means, you know, all the glamour working national newspapers, doing big games, things like that. You know, and actually, you realise you have to go quite a long way once you actually get there to to be in that position. So. For me, I haven't really been obsessed the last few years about working for a national newspaper. I've quite enjoyed being freelance and having the freedom to do what I want. And, you know, I don't know whether I've exploited the digital age by, you know, having working for websites, having my own blog at one point, doing a lot of things on social media and, and whatnot. So I think, yeah, I think it's been an interesting time from really being at uni and, and the sort of blow up of, probably Twitter more than anything else over the last eight, nine, ten years now to to where we are. I, I wouldn't say it's influenced my style or what I do, but I think it's certainly opened up, not just for me, but a lot of people, so many opportunities that weren't there ten years ago. I'm interested to talk about why you decided to go to university to study sports journalism rather than apprenticing. Um, so, for example, a lot of uh, I think a lot of the the guys who are uh, have have been in the in the industry for a while, uh, for them that was the the way in. Uh, I guess you you came through at a point where you could, had the option to to study sports journalism. So, why did you decide to take that route rather than through through the apprenticing route? Mm-hmm. It's a good question, to be honest. Um, you th- when you put your university debt racked up, you wonder that yourself. Um, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I look back now and you know what it's like, you know, the old cliche of journalism. People tell you it's who you know and not what you know. And you think at the time it's a lot of rubbish, but it probably rings a certain amount of truth, to be honest with you, because no job I do at the moment, no one's ever asked for, you know, to see a degree or anything like that. I think I probably went because I felt like, that's kind of what you had to do. You know, you come out of school, you go to college, you go to university and I don't regret it. You know, I I enjoyed it and I got a lot out of it. And it was probably actually, you know, I did do internships alongside it. I did some work with the Yorkshire Evening Post, but probably the biggest thing I did was we had to do a set internship at some point and I actually went abroad. Hmm. I went to do work with a newspaper in Perth in Australia for just over a month. And that, in terms of not just work experience, but a life experience, changed me a lot in terms of what I wanted to do moving forward and, you know, the possibility of working abroad and travelling a lot and going to tournaments. It kind of, it really opened my eyes a lot. Um, Mm. So that was a big thing. In terms of degree and whatnot, I don't know. Like I said, I think you just feel like it's one of those things you have to do. And I'm not saying I, I wouldn't do it if I could go back, but, yeah, I think I just probably felt more confident with having a degree behind me at that time because I think when you're that age you do you know you think if I'm if I'm going to break in I've got to have some kind of degree what about you so you've talked about the the internship side of things at the year uh, and the year abroad but what did your degree look like structurally um, in terms of the the stuff that the stuff that you were learning so what sort of training did you get that you probably wouldn't have got if you were working at a paper or a website without that education well, my, to be fair, my course was quite good. I mean, it was a standard three-year course. Um, we had to do a, a summer internship halfway through, just after the second year. Um, yeah, I mean, all the lecturers were had been journalists, which was a good thing. They weren't just lecturers. They all worked at, at newspapers or, you know, they all had their specialist areas. Some people had worked in law. Some people had worked in the music industry. You know, one of the guys... 
had been a he was a South African guy. He'd done a lot of cricket World Cups and rugby World Cups. So like in terms of listening to their experiences, it was very very good. And we had a journalism week every year where they got speakers in. You know, Gabby Logan came in one year. Jeff Stelling came in one year. And at that age, you know, when you're breaking in to hear those experiences is great. But in terms of how it was structured, yeah, you know, we had our sort of set things within the year. So we'd have a law part, we'd have a TV part, we'd have a newspaper part, we'd have a sport part. Um, so it, it was kind of all bases covered. But I think the biggest thing for me was knowing that all my lecturers had been journalists. I think that was a big thing in terms of, you know, getting that first-hand experience from them and obviously being able to go and do the internship as well halfway through. I guess at this point, you know, podcasts are coming through, websites are becoming big. D- did you get much of the training on that side of things? Yeah, and ironically, that's how I actually got into women's football, really, was we had to do a digital portfolio through the second year, um, kind of following a team or, uh, you know, in any sport, it didn't have to be football, but and just basically in the background, whilst we were doing everything else, update it with blogs, features, interviews, match reports. And I actually started doing things with Leeds United's um, women's team mm. at that time. So, yeah, we had to do a, a portfolio and I was always quite interested in sort of running my own website and things. I've always been quite a stubborn person, so I like being in <laughs> control of things and kind of having my own website and being able to do what I want, your own word counts, things like that was quite interesting um, but then yeah obviously on the, the the flip side it also got me into to women's football what advice would you give now to people who are, are thinking about these sorts of questions about whether they should do a degree or the, go the nctj route um, into journalism what what sort of advice would you give them at this point in time looking back um on your career as it's been yeah it's difficult because everyone has their own experiences obviously and you know, I look back now and think, yeah, you know what? I went to uni, got a lot out of it. But also, you know, if I hadn't have done it, I don't think it would have affected me too much. Because like I said, nobody has ever asked to see a degree or anything like that. I, I probably more recommend doing it than not doing it because of the experience you can get out of it from your lecturers. Mm-hmm. You know, if they've worked in the field, which, as I said, I was lucky enough that they all had and. You know, you might get to do an internship and you might, you know, they've got great contacts as well, lecturers. They always have good mm. contacts. And, you know, even the, the, the people that you're at university with, you know, if they all go on and get jobs and, you know, you're always in contact with them. You never know what's going to come of it. But I think the biggest thing you say is just, you know, do what you want to do. At the end of the day, there's only there's only you that really knows deep down whether you want to go to university or not. But don't. You know, don't stress about it. Don't think it's the be all and end all because if you want to be a writer or you want to be a journalist, I think it's the one job where a degree probably isn't the be all and end all. So you graduated in what, 2013 ish? 2013, yeah. Yeah. So the world of sports journalism has obviously changed a lot in the uh, six or so years since you graduated. What do you think the biggest changes have been? I'm not sure what the biggest changes have been. I think I'd say my perception of it has changed more than probably that the journalism has changed. I mean, mm. I have this conversation quite a lot with, with people like Molly Hudson and Susie mm. Rack and, and Katie Wyatt, who you had on a few weeks ago. And, you know, they all work for national newspapers. And for me, the last few years, I've just not been interested, really. I'm not interested in being a news 
writing. You know, I love writing mm-hmm. features and, and interviews and, like I said, basically being able to do what I want, which which is what the people I write for allow me to do. So I, I think I became quite, you know, I'm not saying every pick because, you know, Susie and Katie and Molly and, and a lot of other fantastic journalists don't do this, but I just didn't want to get sucked into a world where I was kind of, you know, writing about which cars players were driving, you know, where were they shopping. You, mm. you, you see it all the time in certain newspapers every single day. And it just, I just thought, I don't want to end up doing that. You know, I, I want to be in a position where, for me, journalism is going out there and, and finding your own stories, your own unique aspects on things, your own interviews. And, and the women's game really has allowed me to do that because there's so many untold stories. And I think now that the Nationals are really taking it seriously, like I said, with, with Molly, Katie and Susie in particular, it's a fantastic sport to be involved in because it's still so new really relatively compared to the men's game in terms of Mm. its coverage so but yeah in terms of how it's changed I don't know really I mean like I said I think how I view it has changed more than anything else because I'm not saying it's bad you know like I said there's some fantastic journalists out there and you know in terms of long-form journalism which I enjoy you know people like James Montague and Jonathan Mm -hmm. Wilson and Jonathan Liu people like that you know they're fantastic writers so you know I'm not tainting all national newspapers with the same brush or anything like that but yeah I I think I I just lost interest in being what you'd call probably a conventional journalist you know I don't reference myself really as a journalist I reference myself as a writer if anything else because I don't just not really interested in the news side of it to be honest. Right, the next question on the running order I had was was about the changes that you wish you had anticipated, but it seems as though you were you're probably ahead of the curve in in moving into women's football um, journalism in particular. So let's maybe move into talk about that a little bit. You must be excited about the this this sort of pivot to women's football that's that's happening at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a strange one really because every time there's a tournament, you know, a lot of media start turning up that you've never seen before and. You know, it all gets very busy and, and very condensed. And then sort of after the tournament, it kind of goes back to the usual few of you, you know, that, that mm. cover the sport regularly. So it has its highs and lows in that respect. You know, it's great that the game gets that attention. But then you think, well, are they really that interested? You know, because they disappear again as soon as the tournaments yeah. are over. And it's frustrating as well. I mean, me and Katie were having this discussion a few weeks ago. We were at a media day and... This happens all the time. There was a journalist there from one of the big newspapers and they'd never been to a, a, a women's football conference before and we were stood around interviewing one of the players and afterwards they asked us who it was. And I just, <laughs> uh, but that's not the first... That, you know, you'd be amazed how many times that has happened to me in women's football and you know I'm sure it's happened to Katie and to Susie and to Jen O'Neill and, and other people before that people just don't know who these players are and... Yeah, it's great to have the extra media attention, but it's so frustrating at the same time sometimes as well. Yeah, I think that's what's been quite clear from what's been going on with this Copper 90 stuff that's been dropping out this week. The, yeah. the fact that media companies are just going to drop in and try and pick up the uh, the revenue pots available. And then as soon as that revenue pot uh, becomes saturated, they move on and go somewhere else. So I suppose that must be that must be the question at the back of your minds, whether or not 
you think that this pivot to women's football is is actually has a, a bit of a negative aspect to it. So, um, yeah, I guess the question will be what what will be left at the end of that if 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 all of these big media companies then move back away and, and focus elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think the women's football does okay for its media coverage anyway because people like myself, people like Jen O'Neill at She Kicks and Joe Curry at the BBC, you know, done it a long time, a lot a longer. Uh, they were around a long time before I was, and you know, like I said, Molly has now come into it with the Times, Katie with the Telegraph, Susie with the Guardian, and you know, there's a lot of other people that cover it regularly too. So you know, the women's game does fine, I think, for its coverage, and there's nothing wrong. You know, I I have no problem with people getting involved every two to four years or whatever. You know, when a major tournament comes around, it's understandable, but you know, at least you know know who the players are and things like that. Yeah. You know. We, we're not going to have a problem, you know, we're more than happy to have new people coming in, but it just feels a bit disrespectful to turn up and, you you know, you stood in front of this international footballer who's played at major tournaments and you don't, so you can't put a name to a face kind of thing. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of Copper and, you know, all the other companies getting involved, it's good, you know, as long as they're doing, doing it right and, and they genuinely want to be involved and, you know, Copper have put out some good promotional videos, so be interested to see where they go with it and you know there's a lot of other websites and, and channels getting involved so it's good and I think you know a lot of people call it the most fast moving sport around and I, I think it is in terms of the interest going up and you know the sponsors now that are coming in and getting involved and mm. yeah it'd be interesting to see where it is in you know another five years time. Yeah sure uh, obviously it's it's quite clear from what you're saying that that you are a, a rare instance of a man working in the women's game. Mm. Um, you've obviously worked in the men's game as well. So how do you think your job differs when you're working in the in the women's game from when you're working in the men's game? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to say it doesn't really. I mean, I've never noticed a massive difference, to be honest. I think there's probably. I think as we go further towards, you know, we've talked a lot about equality in the last few years and, and women in the media and, and, you know, people like women in football have done fantastic jobs in terms of that kind of thing. And I think in women's football, you know, I saw a job advertisement yesterday that was asking for some women's football content, but they just wanted women, which is fine, you know, because it's been like that in the men's game for so long where hmm. women just didn't have an opportunity. And it, it's great now to see you know, so many, and, and women's footballers as well, you know, you see Sue Smith or Kelly Smith or Rachel Brown, you know, they're always on the TV on Sky Sports or BBC and, you know, you rarely turn the TV on now and Alex Scott isn't on somewhere, you know, and mm. that's great. In terms of being a man working in the women's game, I haven't felt any prejudice or anything like that, you know, I think it's been great you know everyone was very welcoming when I came in and it was probably to be honest quite male dominated at the start you know there was Jen and Joe but there was myself and Tony Layton and Glenn Moore and, and Kieran Tavam and you know now like I said you know Molly wasn't around a few years ago Susie wasn't you know Katie wasn't you got Anne-Marie Batson now is heading up mm. to give me sport women's football division they've just started up and yeah, there's a lot more women coming into it, and young writers as well. You know, Katie's just out of university. Molly is still at university and, and writing for The Times. So, you know, women are getting more opportunities. But there's, there's gaps there for men. You know, there's no prejudice in, in it, and I've never felt like I haven't had an opportunity because, of, because I'm a man, and I think that's 
how it should be. You know, I think in both sides of the sport, if you can do your job properly, whether you're a man covering the women's game or a woman covering the men's game, if you can write and you can get stories and you can do your job properly, then I don't think there should be any issue, really. Have you ever had any suggestions that, that a man is taking up a place for the, that a woman could be having in, in the women's game at all? No, not really. Like I said, I don't think I've ever, you know, apart from possibly the odd comment or the odd tweet over the years, but considering I've been doing it, you know, five, six years, I don't think... There's not been anything sustained, you know, there's not been any prejudice from, from people within the game or outside the game. And, you know, the great thing is it's it's quite a small community still, women's football, in terms of those who cover it and those who are involved in it. And, you know, we all, you know, we're all rivals in a way in terms of the coverage that we do, but we all get on and we all help each other and we all push each other along. And it's probably quite a nice even split now, you know, as, as I said when I came into it, it was probably more male than female, despite the fact it was women's football. And I think now it's very much 50-50 with, with the likes of Katie and, and Susie and Molly and Anne-Marie and you know, Sophie Lawson, people like that. There's so many involved now and everyone's great. You know, it's fantastic. And yeah, as a man, I've certainly not ever felt unwelcome in terms of covering the women's game. Um, let's move on to talk back about the the freelancing route because obviously you you left university and you went straight in as a freelancer. Um, how did that go for you? Was it was that a big decision for you to make at the time? Not really. No, I mean, like I said earlier, I'm quite stubborn, so I I always wanted to freelance really, and I think it was more just figuring out what I wanted to do because, like I said, I was sort of getting to a point where through uni I'd learned a lot about newspapers and and what. It actually was like and what it entailed you know having heard experiences from my lecturers and obviously having gone and done work experience myself you know and I thought well do you know what I'll, I'll go out see what it's like do my own thing try and make some contacts and and kind of go from there and I've always been like that a little bit in terms of I'm quite happy-go-lucky in terms of what I do you know I don't have a set plan and Going freelance for me at that time was the best thing because I didn't really, you know, I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know specifically what I wanted to write about at that point in terms of what was my style, what was my interest. And, you know, I've kind of settled on, obviously, women's football, but in terms of style, you know, long form, features, big interviews, things like that, rather than being a news writer. So I think going freelance for me, yeah, you know, probably a lot of people always say it's a risk, but I've I've enjoyed it, you know, and I'm still doing it now, so it can't have gone too badly. <laughs> I've managed to pull it off <laughs> for six years now, so yeah, it, it's been good, you know. Yeah, there's drawbacks to it, obviously, but you know, I, I've enjoyed it. What was the process like for you? Did you did you just start trying to build a portfolio then and there, and uh, how did you go about getting more and more um, publications that were were open to you? I think for me, like I said, I tried to exploit my kind of market in terms of these unique sort of stories and, you know, pushing the boundaries into to kind of the weird and wonderful a little bit. Like I said, you know, I was quite inspired by Jonathan Wilson. You know, the blizzard was starting mm. up as I was coming out of university. And, you know, I find that such a, a fascinating read. You know, I'd rather read that so much more than, you know, what car Raheem Sterling's just gone out and bought or when Paul Pogba's on his haircut mm. again. 
Um, you know, James Montague, you know, I read his book, um, where he travelled around the world, you know, visiting these weird and wonderful countries trying to qualify for the World Cup. And I just, it was so interesting. I've always loved travelling. So, you know, I said earlier about combining football and writing. And if I can throw in travelling as well, then it's, it's fantastic. So for me, yeah, I was always pretty certain that I wanted to do something a bit different. And I think if anybody looks at my kind of portfolio of work, there's nothing massively mainstream in there. You know, they are kind of quirky stories and different stories and tracking down people, you know, who are not really heard of anymore, who've got, or who have got very interesting and different stories. Hmm. Are you always on the lookout for new outlets? Is that, is that an ongoing battle that you face or are you quite comfortable with the, the outlets that you've got? Yeah, I mean, I'm always open to things, especially where the women's game is concerned, because I think that the further you can push it and the more new outlets that come into it, you like to think that, you know, there's probably the five or six of us that are at the head of women's football in terms of our knowledge and our contacts. And, you know, I had an email yesterday actually off an outlet who I've never worked for before asking if I'd do something for them before the women's World Cup. So. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that persistence in terms of, yes, you do a lot of things, especially in the women's game, you know, a lot of things for free or that you put your own money into. But, you know, just in the last 12 months or so, I'm kind of starting to see the the return for that in terms of the effort and that I've put in, in now that more outlets are getting involved and, you know, asking you to do this or that, you know, even just one-off pieces. But, you know, it's just every little helps kind of thing. A question that I'm always asked about, um, obviously I'm doing a lot of freelancing at the moment, is is about pitching. Um, and people are always interested to know how to pitch. And I guess uh, I've never really gone through a process of, of, of learning how to pitch other than just by going through it and working out what works and what doesn't. So I'd be interested to know what your pitching process looks like. I've never really worked out a skill to it, to be honest with you. I think it's, um, you know, some people say yes, some people say no, some people you never hear back from. And I think that's kind of how I, how it was always described to me when I was getting into it. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said there, you know, I've kind of got the regular people that I write for and they are the people that I go to, you know, first and foremost in terms of pitches. It's very different in the men's game to the women's game. I've found in terms of the men's game, there's obviously a lot more people pitching different things um, to different websites. So you really have to come up with something, you know, very unique or very interesting or something that is going to get a lot of people clicking on it um, for it to be justified. In the women's game, you know, our game magazine, who I've written for now for, for three years, they pretty much say to me, look, you go off, do what you want, speak to who you want, go where you want, you know, do which games you want, and, and we're happy to to take that because they are a, a specifically a women's football outlet so in terms of the pitching process there it's very very easy they give me complete freedom in terms of what I do and, and we use what budget we have um, on that so I kind of dictate the content with other people you know I've written for Planet Football for the set pieces for you know various different websites and you know there's a couple more I'll be writing for soon fingers crossed in terms of the women's game I don't think there's a a unique talent to pitching I think you've just got to have good ideas you know hmm. at the end of the day if you pitch something that someone's done 300 times before you're not going to get anywhere if you can come up with something that is completely unique but interesting that people will read then um, I think you've got a very very good chance 
And how do you keep those interesting ideas coming? Yeah, it's strange, really. I think I've always used LinkedIn a lot. I find LinkedIn a very helpful website in terms of building contacts and networking with people. And you know, I should be amazed the people you come across on there. You know, if people look through the list of people in the men's game that I've interviewed, you know, that maybe disappeared 10 years ago that you never heard from, thinking, how did they track that person down or this person down? Actually, through things like LinkedIn, it's very easy. So I, I kind of, I'm on there every day, really, you know, scrolling through contacts and, you know, adding people or messaging people. And you'd be amazed where it leads you. Um, in terms of the women's game, again, it's very different because, you know, I've worked my way to the top. I've got contacts around the world with, with top players, top managers, agents, you know, things like that. And in the women's game, sometimes you can kind of just do what you want. And it's almost unbelievable how easy it can be at times to get a story or get an interview. Um, like I said, I think like the pitching process, it's very different in the men's game in terms of, yeah, tracking people down. And, and I think it's a lot harder to um, get what you want in the men's game because the access isn't quite what it is in the women's. On this podcast, the, the last question I always ask is is about the future. It's quite a daunting question, I think, but um, I always ask people, what, what do you think the future of, of football journalism looks like and how do you see yourself fitting within that future? Yeah, it's a very hard question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think for me personally, I mean, I, I have every intention of, kind of staying in the women's game if I can so I think that makes it even a harder question because it's moving so quickly you know five years ago when I got into it um, you know there was very few people covering it newspaper coverage was non-existent and it was very rarely even on television now you've got every single World Cup game being shown you've got you know three major national newspapers that really throw a lot at it and others that, that chip in and like you said people like Copper you know getting involved Bleacher Report have done a few things and you know the BBC do so much with it BT Sport do a lot with it now you've just got Claire Balding's new programme on Channel 4 now looking mm. at women's football around the world so it's scary how, how quick it's moving and you know I think the next I mean, we're no more after the World Cup but obviously we might have a Team GB at the Olympics next year we obviously have our home European Championships in 2021 and I mean after that you know depending on how the next two years go I think that will map out a lot of the future of journalism and, and coverage in the women's game in terms of the men's game I think I don't see it changing too much you know I think it's driven by what people are going to click on you know because newspapers have to justify it and I think we'll still see a lot of what we do see I hope we still see a lot of the good journalism as well the interesting journalism and you know more products like the blizzard um mm. that are fantastic and you never know i mean people say print is dying or magazines are dying but you might have that renaissance in the future you know you think about things like you know vinyl for example you know how vinyl has come back in now in music mm. because you know it sort of went out of fashion and now because of that it's almost come back into fashion it might be like that in 20 years you know print might have a a massive boom and people start buying magazines and books again more regularly so you don't know do you? it could go either way but i'm not generally pessimistic about it i think there's always a there will always be a market for what we do you know in terms of written coverage of things and 
interviews and features and opinion pieces, that's never going to go away because the sport on both sides is always changing. There's always something new happening. And that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, I can sit here now and say, yeah, I'm going to do a World Cup in the summer. But after that, you've got transfers, you've got a new season, you've got fixtures coming out. You know, it's an endless cycle, but it's always something new at the same time. Well, Rich, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you for taking out the time. Um, what's the best way that people can follow you on social media and read your stuff? Yep, yeah, I'm on Rich J Laverty on Twitter. So that's primarily it, really. I don't have Facebook, but I've not, not work Facebook pages or anything anyway. So it's mainly just Twitter. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie, Ahmed Yusuf and Rich Laverty. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media, but until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.